0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Therapeutic Voices, which is a podcast of conversations with mental health professionals about the topics that matter to them. Therapeutic Voices is produced in association with Samaricare Counseling, which is a nonprofit psychotherapy clinic with locations all over the Chicagoland area. On today's episode of Therapeutic Voices, I sat down with Dr. Mike Bradburn at the Samaricare Donners Grove offices. And I spoke with him about his interest in something called Bowen Family Systems. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is just jump right into the conversation, and we're going to pick up with Mike talking about how he initially became interested in Bowen Family Systems.
1: When I think back on when, when I was first exposed to Bowen Family Systems theory, it was in graduate school. I was taking some family classes, some family therapy classes, and we were looking at different theoretical models and so forth, and I remember learning about Bowen. And I was writing a paper, and I stumbled across an article um, called The Myth of the Shitzka, and it's um, by Ed Friedman, who was one of Bowen's um, students, and he's a rabbi and a family therapist. And he was writing about um, this phenomenon in the, the Jewish culture when there's a Jewish person and they're gonna marry somebody outside of that faith tradition um, and this anxiety and this whole um, drama that can happen, they call that person a a shiksa. Um, And he was looking at this phenomenon and it was seen to be just kind of like unique in that particular faith tradition and that particular dynamic. And then in looking at other cultures, um, it was the same emotional dynamic and situation was taking place in an Italian family when they were marrying someone who wasn't Italian, and just the list goes on and on. It was looking at it, not specifically to that culture that it was um, unique, but that it was an emotional dynamic that was going on with the, um, in the family's um, system. So I was drawn to, the, um, to that and remember reading that and using that um, in a paper early in um, grad school. Um, when I left grad school, I realized I, I wanted to learn more about uh, you know, a theoretical model. And I considered different ones, but I um, remembered this experience and I remembered learning about um, Bowen Family Systems Theory and I just kept being drawn to it. And it also helped that when I began my first um, job out of graduate school as being an associate pastor. And the senior pastor there was actually um, a systems thinker and he was actually training with Ed Friedman out in Maryland. So. we would um, work together on different leadership things and situations in the congregation and um, use Bowen Family Systems Theory. So that's kind of how I first got um, exposed. And one other thing I I really liked about it is that um, in the training, it was really learning about the theory um, and applying it to my own family of origin and my own family and learning to work on my own Mm -hmm. self-differentiation. So it wasn't about analyzing someone else or looking outside, um and looking at pathology and things like that and others it was looking at myself and my own functioning and my family as well as other emotional systems
0: that's really interesting so that that kind of brings up two questions that so the the first one is that you know i've heard many different people from kinds of you know different sorts of theoretical backgrounds and different sorts of experiential back, backgrounds who end up becoming therapists in some way say that you can only you know, take your patients, your clients, whatever it is you want to call them, as far as you yourself has gone, right? And so when you started talking about the the method of Bowen Family Systems, I got the impression that a big part of that is definitely kind of looking at your, your you as an individual person, you know, within the context of your own family, which has had a huge formative effect on you, coming to a better understanding of that, you know, why you are who you are and and the effect that your family has had on you, good, bad, somewhere in the middle uh, Mm -hmm. and all that. And that the reason that you do that is you have to actually engage in that process in order to be able to kind of guide anybody else through their own version of that. Is that Mm -hmm. accurate? Do you agree with that? Disagree with that?
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. You know, in in this, you know, in many um, models, but definitely with Bowen Family Systems Theory, um, I've been a part of a, a group with the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center. They do clergy clinics, and I've been doing that for a long time. And a big part of that is doing one's own family of origin work. So I'll meet with you know four different pastors, and we'll be working on on family of origin. They'll be working on their own with the idea being that doing your own work on your own family of origin that's a way to learn the theory and to be able to um, you know and work on oneself and one's own uh, self differentiation and, and managing anxiety and family and in their congregations and so forth. So it's definitely a high value on doing one's own work and learning the theory, not just as a, an intellectual exercise or not just analyzing others, but in, in, in deeply understanding for oneself and, and looking at one's own functioning, um, you know, in their own family, wherever they, they work, um, mm-hmm. but also in the therapy room, like how does one manage oneself and what reactivity is coming up. And a lot of that, if it's worked on in your own, your own work, um, tend to be less reactive when you're getting things that might activate you from families you're working with and so forth.
0: Okay, the, that was the the one question. Another question I had is you mentioned you know that you were exposed to this when you were in grad school and that your first job out of grad school was that you were uh, a pastor in a in a church. And I'm curious, just uh, is that a common thing do you find that that people who are in positions of leadership within you know, uh, religious communities in particular, that there is this propensity to think in systems, you know, the, the way that you described it, and to use things like Bowen family systems or perhaps like structural family therapy or, or some of those other family therapy modalities and maybe apply that kind of theoretical stuff to the congregations that you're working with?
1: That's a good question. I w- I think it's it's fairly, I don't know, like percentage-wise, but, I mean, the people that I tend to know Tend to know at least some about Bowen family systems theory, and you know people like Friedman and Peter, like Peter, or and people like Peter Steinke, who's done a lot of work applying um, the theory to congregations. Um, so it is pr- um, pretty well known in in the circles that I'm involved with. And um, again, I don't know the exact percentage, but I think it's it's fairly popular as a way of of looking at the the theory and applying it to congregational settings.
0: Could you say a little bit about the way that the Bowen Family Systems model kind of conceptualizes, I'm using my, my fingers to use air quotes here, mm-hmm. uh, the family, you know, as a unit. And, and I ask that question because I, I find that nowadays, the, you know, what people think of when they hear that word family, that, that isn't just, you know, like mom, dad, children, etc. I think that, that there's the nuclear family, the classical version of family, and that is, of course, one version of it. But I get the impression in talking with you and other people who I know who have really deeply engaged with family systems kind of theoretical work, that uh, you know, if somebody were to come in and want to do family therapy, that might not be the the definition that you start with when you start thinking about family. So I'm really curious about how you and maybe more generally how Bowen thinkers kind of like operationalize or define what is a family.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. They, you know, usually it, you know we look back at a family diagram or a genogram and look back at the, you know, three generations before, or if you can, or at least two. So like grandparents, parents, and then the person that we're working with and maybe they have kids. So it could be four generations. So, I mean, typically looking back there, you know, there are grandparents and then there were offspring and then there were other marriages and there, you know, or other children born and you have, you know, these blending of a bunch of different, systems and then becoming another nuclear family, having kids and then they go out, you know, so it's 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 typically kind of looking at the big picture of the family tree in terms of like working with somebody who has maybe a non-conventional, um, you know, n- nuclear family now, I think that would be, could be whatever form that takes, but it looks a lot at the generations before and how a person got there, you know, so whether they're adopted or, um, you know whether they have more of a traditional family and all that. It's I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but it's, it's it does a lot of work looking back, I guess, at in the past.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that answers the question. I guess the part of the reason I was thinking of it is that it, it seems to me that a lot of times uh, people nowadays, you know, they have different definitions of, of who is in and who is out of their family. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times, this comes from things like. You know, people will have stepchildren, uh, children will have step parents. And I mean, you know, that could mean that somebody became your step parent when you were, you know, in your 30s, or it could mean they become became your step parent when you were six years old. You know, this, this is going to play out differently. Right. Um, uh, people have, you know, partners, they, they may get married, they may choose not to get married. Uh, families seem to have have just changed the, the way that we, we define them now. I think that, that that one of the things that the people sometimes are worried about is that their definition of family whatever that is might not match up with like a therapist's definition of what a family is. And and so I think it's really interesting to to like talk about that, you know, talk about this idea of the family as a unit and and what it is that that defines that or doesn't define that, you know, where are the boundaries when I'm listening to you talk about it? the impression that I get is that your process is uh, not to try to impose your own definition of what a family is, but to be more interested in how the person who you're speaking to defines and creates the boundaries around what their family is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and looking at like they're, whoever they're, they're with now and um, however they define it and looking at um, the emotional context or the emotional field um, whether it's a step-parent or a biological parent or whether they don't even know their biological parent, but looking at the emotional system they grew up in and were a part of and kind of where that extends in a family tree kind, sort of way. Um, so definitely, yeah, it's about, it's you know, because you could take an organization, a church, any, any place really, it's a, a system and has similar um, characteristics to, you know, a family in terms of the emotional process that happens.
0: So, so maybe from here what would be really helpful, let's go up really high, let's get a lot of altitude here <laughs> okay. and look down on yeah. this thing called Bowen Family Systems and maybe get a good overview okay. of what you know, this theory is and the different kind of concepts that come together to make it up.
1: Okay, yeah, that's, that sounds fun. Um, so in Bowen Family Systems Theory, looking at anxiety um, is important, right, and how anxiety is transmitted through, between people, through generations and how symptoms might come out as a result of different anxiety. So that's one, you know, thing that we'll be thinking about. But I want to start by just talking about briefly about the triune brain. So Bowen Family Systems Theory, it comes out of the natural sciences or biology. So a lot of the um, the observations that Bowen made were were out of the biological sciences. So... Um, So he was really interested in the idea of the triune brain. And, you know, there are three parts of our brain, the human brain, the reptilian brain. We could think of that as autopilot, um, survive, act without thinking, and really black and white.
0: Breathing, digesting food. Breathing,
1: digestion, all that, yeah. And kind of a yes, no, black, white kind of. um, And that's where, like, flight and fight are, aggression um, and all that. And the middle part is the million brain, the house of emotion, you could call it. Love and hate, bonding, play. This is where emotions um, you know operate memory formation, short-term memory and storage that can turn into long-term memory, um, religious tendencies, um, and then timelessness. Um, there's no today or tomorrow or yesterday. So this is where when working with trauma that we we address um, the, the middle brain because that's where um, you know if you talk if you're working with somebody who has trauma, and they're activated and are talking about it and thinking about it. It's like it's happening right then, or it just happened yesterday, even though it might have been ten years ago because it's a, a timeless um and they' and the mammalian brain um and the first one you know they operate without premeditation they just they just do their thing um, and then did you have a, yeah, I was uh, going to
0: say that's uh if i whenever I hear about the mammalian brain there's there's certain terms that kind of get thrown around a lot now it's the the limbic system right. You know, or the amygdala, it, come, it comes into this and these things called amygdala scripts, which I don't know if people who are listening to this are going to be into that. They can, they can Google those terms and probably find out a lot about them. But the way that I think uh, about this is, you, like you said, the reptilian brain is where the instincts are. The mammalian brain is really our emotional brain, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a part of our brain that when you're talking about it being timeless and stuff, I think of it as a part of our brain that just really wouldn't make sense to us. It doesn't operate logically; it, it operates emotionally.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. And that's where, in looking at the theory, you know, looking at the neocortex or the thinking part of the brain, thinking cap, you could call it. You know, that's where we're able to analyze and reflect, observe, create. That's where our reasoning, executive decision making, mathematics, all those are up up front. So what happens under under stress and when there's anxiety, is that we default to our, you know, the middle brain or our, even our reptilian brain. Um, and we're not at our best in terms of thinking and and thinking things through in the way that are, you know, are in line with our principled ways or our values or our goals. Um, so some of the things that are unique about the neocortex, we can, you know, uh, unique to humans, we can project into the future, um, we can exercise social competence, can observe ourself and environment, we can use our imagination, think critically and then regulate emotional forces. Um, So that's just really important background to have with Bowen Family Systems Theory as as well as other um, theoretical models, but it was very important um, to Bowen in, in developing the theory. So in terms of when he was working, he was, you know, doing his work in the the 1950s and 1960s. He died in 1990. Um, He was a psychiatrist, and he developed a theory of human functioning um, that was, you know, ended up being called Bowen Family Systems Theory. Um, You know, as one of his his close colleagues, Michael Kerr, um, who I've had the chance to work with and learn from, um, he... He would say bone theory is a theory of human behavior that views the family as an emotional unit and uses systems thinking to describe the complex interactions in the unit. Um, so, I was, you know, in school and high school and college, I was really interested, you know, in biology um, more than any other science. So, I really like the fact that it's out of natural systems and biology, and um, that was another reason why it was appealing to me. Um, You know, just to give you a little context, so he's working in the 50s and 60s, um, psychiatrist working with um, patients who had schizophrenia and did a lot of research um, with those patients and then their families um, in terms of, you know, what would happen is he would, and his team would have, you know, patients um, with schizophrenia in an inpatient setting. He would, through the week, they would be working with them and and symptoms would um, decrease. They would be functioning at a higher level And then Sunday afternoon would come by and family would visit and and the patient would really become very reactive and the symptoms would would really come out again. And he was like, what's going on here? And that we had the person, you know, pretty stabilized, they're having a good week, parents, family come in and the person's acting, um, the symptoms are really like escalating coming out a lot again. So he started to think a little bit differently. Um, I mean, up until that point, Until Bowen, you know, in the 50s and 60s, psychoanalytic theory was, um, for example, which had developed through the study of individual patients, had mainly seen the family as a collection of relatively autonomous people. Um, So family systems theory, on the other hand, viewed the family as a unit, as a network of interlocking relationships. Um, And by their nature, they can be very intense. So each person is not just an autonomous psychological entity, but instead was strongly influenced by the family relationship system. And so
0: could, I wanted to just kind of like check my own understanding with this, make sure I'm following along correctly here. So what you're describing is, you know, you have Murray Bowen in the 1950s, 1960s. He's working with individual patients in a hospital setting. And what he's finding is, you know, he works with a, a person who has schizophrenia or some other kind of very uh, noticeable, oftentimes debilitating Kind of chronic mental illness, and he he tries to help him out. He, he and he sees progress. He sees improvement. Uh, this seems good. He invites the family to come in for a visit, or, or maybe he doesn't invite them, but they they come just because that's what people do. And when the family shows up, and this individual who has been improving starts to interact with their family again, Bowen notices that they regress and go back to this very symptomatic, very problematic way of being. It's like they take a couple of steps back mm-hmm. into the way that they were when he started working with them. And what he notices is that the trigger, the antecedent, I guess, of this regression is the proximity of the family.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to, to state it. And and then, again, till that point, it was the individual's... Um, problems or issues were really seen as their own physical problems or their own um, mental health problems and so forth and and really not the the connection between the the system and the family as a whole and how symptoms can come out in different ways so that was it, it started to just kind of like click for him that something else was going on other than just the individual psychology that he had studied and learned and was kind of the standard
0: that's fascinating too just I think because. Uh... One of the things that seems to be happening a lot in our culture today, I think, um, people may disagree with this, but I think that nowadays there's a a kind of unthought sort of um, assumption maybe that like, so you're you're responsible for your mental and physical health. Like it's your job mm-hmm. to take care of your body and your mind and to do all the things that you need to do to make sure that those things are working the way that they should. And it's my responsibility to take care of my body and my mind. And if there was a third person here, it would be their responsibility to take care of their body. And their, it's, it's very much like you take care of you mm-hmm. in kind of like modern-day American culture. And what Bowen is um, kind of like pointing out here is that, oh, okay, yeah, to some extent that that is true. It is our responsibility to care for ourselves to a degree. But human beings are you know, born dependent and they're born into a family uh they're born into a set of circumstances a set of norms a set of uh expectations etc and being contained within that that family those norms those expectations that those have an effect on the individual and that the individual might develop a set of symptoms as a result of these things that they're born into that they didn't choose they just that's the hand they were dealt Mm -hmm. and and uh there's a thing that I, I say a lot of times to, to people, because I, I believe this, it's that, you know, well, symptoms can be very problematic things in our lives, they started out as solutions to problems, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think what, what is really interesting in the way that you're describing what Bowen is seeing is he might have started to recognize that some of the mental uh, fung- like problems that he was seeing might have started out as a solution to a problem that existed
1: within a family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. To pick up on the symptoms, you know, he, he had this thing called the Yuna disease. And he he talked about every social, emotional or physical symptom or problem um, was kind of like coming from the same place, which is through the generations. um, um, You know, the emotional system was creating these symptoms in terms of um, in, you know, the context of a family that has a lower level of uh, self differentiation, which I'll talk about in a minute, but essentially self differentiation is maturity. And um, over the generations, the sort of the maturity level of, of people can either rise up some or lower down some. And you know, so if you're born into a family that's very rigid, that has um, is there's not a room for difference of opinion, there's not room for people to to develop into saying what they think and feel. Um, you're either bullied to go along with whatever or you, you do the bullying and you can see, you know, those kinds of dynamics over time um, and the anxiety that's driving a lot of that um, comes out in depression, comes out in, in cancer, comes out in other um, physical and emotional and even social problems. So he had this concept, which I think was pretty radical, of, of the Euna the disease. It's kind of like it's just another symptom. It just happened to come out that way.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting to to think about that. But I'm I'm interested. Tell tell me more from yeah. this, this high level overview. Give
1: you a little more. So yeah, like so he he didn't ignore the psychology of the individual, but he just placed it in a larger context, and really looked at and could see the interconnectedness between families and the emotional field, and emotional reactivity in and different um, family uh, settings. Um, so even when somebody tries to, um, you know, one of the common ways of managing tension or anxiety or discomfort in a relationship is to cut off, you know, cut off emotionally, cut off, uh, move across the country, kind of do both. And you know, you can feel um, distant or disconnected from your family, either by choice, you're, you're trying to do that, or you feel like you're not close to them. Um, but even then, your families are profoundly affecting the person. It's like, I don't feel close to you. But there's a lot of stuff going on still in the in thoughts and feelings and actions
0: there's a another this makes me think of a, a different thing that i'll I'll talk with people about sometimes because uh, i i I teach graduate students psychological theory and uh one of the things that i'll I'll do when talking about this notion that i I just use the term psychological family uh, for it and uh, the way I try to describe this is to say you know imagine hypothetically here that you're on a cruise ship or something and there's an accident you hit an iceberg, I don't know. And you find yourself you you wake up on an island and there's there's food and stuff like that like you you can survive there but there's no other people it's just you you're 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 you can't find anybody else there's there's so you're alone on the island even if you're in that situation you're never really alone Hmm. and and the the way reason I say that you're never really alone is because you have all of these people in your head you know uh, Hmm. the the important people in your life the people who you who you've come to know well. They are, I mean, they're not literally physically there with you, but psychologically, you're thinking of them. Mm-hmm. You're, you're having conversations with them. You're imagining them judging the way that you do things and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, so on and so forth. So I, I think that that's actually, maybe that ties into this idea that, of, of Bowens, right? That um, you may have grown up in a family in Boston, Massachusetts, and when you turn into an adult, maybe something happens and you move all the way to Los Angeles, California. So you're a continent away from them at this point. And even though you're a continent away from them and you might not be talking to them on a daily basis, they continue to kind of like reside in your head mm-hmm. and have some form of an influence over you and your thoughts and your emotions and your behaviors, et etc. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, That I think that ties into what we're talking about for sure. Um, and you know talking about like the you know unresolved um things or unresolved relationships too so the more um relationships are resolved with parents and with with family um the more to a lesser degree does that happen if you're you know always looking for approval or you're looking for to meet the expectations of um the parent and 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 you never got it and you're so you move to california um it still lives on that that longing, that desire, that anxiety for that. So, the more um, you know, things can be resolved for back. Like a better way of saying it, meaning that you can you can be an autonomous person, and you can be also connected with others. Um, that's an important idea in this. That you the ideal is to be, you know, the two competing life forces, the the force for togetherness, and which you know really it has you know can get into the. the mammalian brain as we talked about that bonding part but the the pull toward wanting to be autonomous and those that's there's there's tension are literally two competing life forces and you can see it from you know little kids learning how to walk you know they start to walk and they walk away from their parent and then they look and they're terrified and they run back and they grab the parent's leg and they don't they want to be in the parents lap again and then they want to be independent and it starts at a young age and that push and pull back and forth, the more that can be um, handled and resolved in a way where you can be in relationship, but you can also be yourself and you don't have to um, appease the other. You don't have to agree with the other. You can define yourself um, while staying connected. That's an important key is being able to, um, key concept is to, to be able to define yourself, your thoughts and feelings and stay connected with others and being okay if there's are very different than yours. That's a level of a higher level of self-differentiation.
0: That's really cool. Cause like I I mean, and I, I see this in other places too. I think that sometimes people want things to be maybe not complex, right? They want it to be simple. And one of the ways that people will do that is they'll say, like, okay, you have to be like kind of like all about you. You know, or you have to be all about them. Yeah. (laughs) And and what I think you're getting at here is that the Bowen way of looking at this is that we're both, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's like this Goldilocks amount of being kind of uh, in relationship and connected to and involved with other people. And at the same time, uh, not at a different time, but at the same time, also wanting to have your own space, you know, away from people. Uh, time for yourself to do whatever it is that you want to do, think about the things you want to think about, mm-hmm. et cetera, that, that human beings exist uh, in relationship with other human beings and kind of like on their own um, mm-hmm. at the same time. It, it, isn't, it isn't a choice. We're, we're always both.
1: Right, right. So like in marriages, for example, um, being able to have a fluid, you know, back and forth between being autonomous, going to work, you know, doing what a person does, coming together, being close, being connected, that can be, you know, being able to do that in a fluid way, in a, in a way that's flexible, over time lasts, then, when you get into a, like a really rigid situation, you have, you can get cut off, essentially, or when people become autonomous, and they kind of stay stuck there, or the opposite extreme is where you become enmeshed, or you come together as a blob for of togetherness, and you're you don't even know where your thoughts and feelings end and where the others begin. So that would be, you know, those would be the extremes. But the ideal is to be able to be together but still be a whole person, go apart, come back together. And that that's true of in marriages and other relationships as well.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's this idea. I think that yeah, I mean, everybody wants to to be able to have people who they can share things with, you know, hey, I want to tell you about my day. I have this interesting idea. Um, I'm I'm working on this project. Can I show it to you? Uh, we we all crave that, and at the same time, we probably all crave solitude. I guess you know. Uh, so, that we can reflect and think and and to sort of have that time on our own, mm-hmm. where, where we come up with these different things that we might share with somebody later on. And yeah, that you're. I like the way that you're describing it. is is a fluid way of moving between the two. In my head, I imagine like a really. Sometimes people, it's really hard for them to like leave. And go do their own thing and or it might be hard for them to kind of come back in because they feel like they're gonna be overwhelmed once mm-hmm. they walk in the front door or something like that as opposed to somebody who can kind of be like hey I'm gonna go for a run see you and you know however long and people are like cool have a good run mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you, you go you run you come back how was it uh, it was tough today mm-hmm. you know and it it just it's not a hard thing to to come and go and mm-hmm. and have that be a non-problematic activity
1: mm-hmm. and you see that with um you know, kids, young adults leaving home. Some parents, you know, it's like you're 18, you're out of here, and others, it's like, you know, please stay until you're 30. And there's like a, almost a pressure not to leave. It can play out in some different ways, um, you know, in marriages, like I said, but in, in other, other with uh, parent-child relationships as well. tell you about a couple of uh concepts? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I'd love to hear about the concepts. So there are eight, you know, basic concepts in Bowen theory. I'm not going to go over all of them, but I'm just going to highlight a, a few of them. But I want to first talk about emotional triangles. So triangles um you know are one of the eight. And that's, you know, you and I are talking, it's a two-person relationship and, you know, after time if if I'm starting to feel uncomfortable, I might in our relationship not just right now, but just in general I might seek out somebody else to kind of talk about um, about you with because I, I'm having a hard time just directly communicating with you. It's a natural thing that happens all the time. And we really live in a series of interlocking triangles, emotional triangles, um, because really a, a two-person relationship is not very stable, um, and nor is it in, in other, you know, if you look at um, just construction, you can't have everything parallel. You have to have cross beams you have to have a bunch of actually triangles if you look behind walls and things it's all a bunch of triangles It's way more stable so a, a two-person relationship is is not stable so you know we draw in others um so gossip can be a form of triangulation and in other ways and it, it you know in a lot of times it ends up being not that healthy um but it can be used in a way that's not at first when I was learning about triangles, I was like, triangle's bad, you know. But there are, are some ways it can be used um, strategically in ways that aren't. Um, and they're kind
0: of unavoidable. That's what I'm getting Yeah, they're totally too.
1: unavoidable. But being... So the first thing is to even just be aware. Like, yeah, I'm feeling stressed about this situation. Yeah, I'm going to talk to my friend about it. Um, and it, this is going to be a triangle, but I'm going to choose to do this. So it's like being aware that you're doing it is a big step can, versus just doing it so automatically you don't even realize like all the the triangles that are being created. So, you know, if you were, so you have a three-person relationship like that. Another, like, aspect of it is that when things are going well, you want to be, like, of the two, two are close. You want to be on the inside. And then the other person is feeling left out. They're kind of the odd person out, right?
0: Yeah, so I I guess I'm trying to, like, for people who are listening to this to to maybe picture this a little bit differently. If you imagine a triangle... Mm -hmm. Imagine that two points of the triangle are very close together, like maybe the bottom two points, and then the one at the top of the triangle. Imagine right. it like really right. far away, yeah. You know, from those two that are really close together, and and you're saying that's kind of like the basic structure of it. That 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 the person who's triangle triangulated out is that third point, right?
1: Is right is is feeling left out of the friendship or the emotional connection that's happening between the other two, um, but then when things get you know. Um, stressful or there's conflict in that original two, then the the third person, then it's desirable when there's tension or conflict to be on the out position because you don't want to be a part of that intense part. So it's like when things are going well, you could be jealous that you're on on the outside. When things are tense, the um, out position is kind of more desirable desirable because you're not in the middle of the storm.
0: Yeah, say there's three children in a family, right? Uh, three kids. All the kids, I don't know, are messing around and they, they break something. And two of the kids are like, hey, let's get together and let's blame the other one. You yeah. know, that, that would be a, a negative example of a triangle. But you'd see two kids kind of like coming together to kind of like bump the, other, the third kid out as the fall guy, Yeah. you know, for, yeah. for what went wrong here. Or it could be the same situation where all three of them do it. And one kid's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, I'm, yeah. I'm running away. Like, good luck. People can be pushed into that position right and also that people can can maybe run to that position mm-hmm. that it can go either way i guess
1: right yeah for sure um and if you think about it too you know like um you and i are like say we're having a bit of a conflict and i talk to somebody else and i, I probably feel better i'm like offloading my anxiety or stress onto that person that person is like now kind of taking some of that i'm like sharing that anxiety with them i feel better but they don't necessarily feel better, that they have to, to carry that or be aware of that. So when I was saying, like, some good ways it can be used, you know, actually in therapy, the therapist can be, serve that role of, like, sort of that taking on some of that, you know, but listening and trying to do, you know, help the situation, not just, like, get, you know, loaded down with the anxiety, like, and, and sort of regular um, dynamics. Although it, it can, you can definitely feel the, the weight of it when, um, You hear about a situation that's really heavy and it's you know it's not like we're immune to that but we have to to work on that in terms of managing that but just in general if you think of a triangle somebody's like unloading on you as the sort of the new person in the triangle their frustrations with person a usually that's kind of like you can almost feel like you almost feel better when you offload it and you almost feel the weight when you're the new person in the triangle is that
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense it makes me think of uh There's I mean, times where I'm doing therapeutic work with people like uh, families or couples or whatever, you have two people in the room with you and they're describing a situation that they both were in. And then one of the two turns to you, the therapist, and they're like, is that normal? Whenever that happens, I actually kind of, or maybe not every time, but very often I think of triangulation. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's what's going on right here, right? They're trying to like bring me into that close position with them and bump this other person Mm -hmm. out to that far position.
1: Yeah. That would be then if you agreed, you'd be a, the inside with them, and that person would be the bad person out for sure. Yeah, that's a good example of that. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, triangulation is such an interesting concept again because it's it happens. We're not going to stop it from occurring, right? But what I think you're saying is that what we can do is we can become maybe a little bit more attuned to it and aware of it when it is happening. And with yeah. that attunement, with that awareness, we might be able to respond to it not like like on autopilot and just like kind of feeding into that dynamic, but instead have a more kind of thought out, possibly strategic reaction to the attempted triangulation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well, well said. Another thing I like about Bowen Family Systems Theory is it's, to me, it just makes sense, kind of like biology. It just kind of works the way it does. It's kind of, there's a sort of a common sense part of it in terms of, you know, the the idea of differentiation of self. Really, to me, that's maturity, you know, it's and and how I would define that would be, you know, a lower level of self-differentiation would mean that you um, really struggle with saying what you think and feel. And, and having difference of opinion with somebody, so um, a higher level of self differentiation would be um, you can define yourself, your stance, your position, what you think, what you feel, and do that. And you know, if you're, what what happens theoretically with us, like who we end up, you know, being our life partners or who we're friends with, are really people that are at a similar similar level of self differentiation. So the theory says that we, we partner with or marry, you know, somebody who's at a similar level of self differentiation than we are. And that when we have a child, they come out at pretty much a similar level. If you have three children, um, usually one's like a little more, one's about the same, one's a little less. And that's, that's just sort of like been observed how that that works. Um, But it's, it's really when there's like a lot of pressure for group think, or you have to go you have to be this way, you have to think this way. That's a lot of um, pressure, so what do you do? You either conform to that and you, um, or you, you know, you split maybe. Um, So again, differentiation of self maturity and um, to be able to tolerate difference, to be able to hear differences of opinion and, and be okay with that, to listen, to reflect on, to share one's own perspective, and to be okay if they're different and don't just go along to get along, so to speak.
0: This is really interesting for me because uh, I've talked about differentiation in, in classes and um, I've talked to, to people who are, are Bowenian family therapists or, or coaches or, or whatever about this. And uh, I've asked this question a couple of times, I've gotten different answers. So I'm really curious about how you're going to answer it. I kind of equate this idea of um, differentiation of, of the self with security i I think of people who i would tend to characterize as insecure people people who are very anxious very worried that they're not going to be understood or accepted or or whatever Uh, they they have a lot of insecurities about their body or about i don't know their professional reputation whatever those are the people who i tend to see as having a lower level of differentiation of self and I, I I think that the the lower their level of security the the less differentiated they are. likewise, I feel that there are some people who tend to have higher levels of security they feel good about themselves, they feel good about the way they look, about how they do their job, and they recognize that of course, not everybody's gonna like everything they have to say or the way that they do everything that they do, et cetera and yeah. you know that okay mm-hmm. I can I can live with that I can. I can accept that somebody would basically be like, I think you're doing it wrong. And I can be like, why do you think that? In a non defensive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then engage in some kind of conversation without needing to like conform to their, I don't know, critique or just like blindly rebelling. Like, you're wrong. How dare you? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they just kind of go, oh, yeah, tell me, wh- how would you do it? That's how I think of it. Does that match up with the way that you think about it?
1: Yeah. I would say for the most part that, that, um, way of looking at it makes sense to me and is congruent with, with looking at it. Yeah. I mean, I think people that I've observed, say when I was younger a kid and adults that were like had a certain, um, a certain aura or a certain maturity or certain security, like they didn't study Bowen family systems theory, but they, they were doing this. They were, they, they had, they knew where they ended and where another began and they respected that. And they were just a solid, mature person that you could say had a, a higher level of self-differentiation than than a less mature person. So I would, I would say the way you're framing it um, makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, it's like like people can – they don't need to be right for everybody, right? It's like they, they're like, this is, this works for me. I'm, you know, I like it. It seems like it makes my life good or better. So I, I do things this way. And then maybe somebody comes along and is like, hey, there's this other way you could do it. And they're like, oh. I've never tried that before. They're
1: they're not threatened by that. Yeah, and I've done a little bit of thinking about it in terms of preaching. Actually, um, I personally I'm much more attracted to preachers that that ask questions, um, you know, teach, but but show some possibilities, some ideas, versus ones that you know are more. This is the way, and are more coercive in their their way of presenting things. And to me, um, it can show up in different ways. You know, sales people who are like hey, I'm here to help. If, if you need anything, let me know if they're, like, you know, really trying to sell you something you don't want. You know, it, it, it's like you can see it in different different contexts, but I've thought about it, you know, in, in terms of preaching um, for as one area. But it can be anything and across the board, any, any, any possible vocation.
0: There, there's a, a quip. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but um, somebody who was a former teacher of mine when I took a, a really intense seminar on family therapy, told the story, um, they, uh, about Murray Bowen, uh, and, and that somebody once asked Murray Bowen, um, how do you know when somebody has like a good differentiation of self? How do you know when, when somebody's there? And his Bowen's response was, um, if you can go back home to your family of origin for Thanksgiving and spend a couple of hours there without turning into a child or a teenager, you've <laughs> nailed it. Uh, and if, if you, when you go back home to your family of origin, what ends up happening is you find yourself kind of like responding in what we might think of as a rather adolescent or childish way, mm-hmm. you know, and that this kind of maybe goes back to what you were talking about with the schizophrenic patients, right? It's mm-hmm. like when you re-engage with your family, does that problematic, symptomatic, kind of habitual way of relating to your own family's dynamics, does that come back? So, yeah, that
1: that's, that, that totally makes a lot of sense that quote, but yeah, picturing, you know, somebody that goes back and do they turn into, um, you know, a lower level would be, um, they sort of regress to a teenager and they either just go along with everything their parents are saying, even if they don't agree, or they just, you know, are super rebellious and, you know, and push back on everything. Um, can they, can they manage themselves somewhere in the middle, which would be, you know, like appropriately assertive would be another way of saying it's like, this is my thought. I'm, I'm saying what I think, but if you don't agree, that's okay. I'm not attached to that. And if you say something I don't agree with, I'm not going to just go along with it and say I agree if I don't just so we get along.
0: That, that's such an, uh, I think, an important concept for now, right? I mean, we live in, in a time that I think uh, pretty much anybody who's listening to this can think of many instances of like our very polarized society where that there's this idea that this is my set of beliefs, and if you have the other set of beliefs, then you know, you're know you wrong <laughs> or your beliefs need to be corrected or you need to be educated out of that wrong way of thinking. Who knows how, how people might say that. That would, I think, indicate a lower level of differentiation. It's a very defensive, somewhat immature, potentially way of, of dealing with difference when we encounter mm-hmm. it. And people who maybe have higher levels of differentiation of their self would be able to say to somebody who comes from a different way of looking at the world, and and actually have a conversation with them about that. Mm-hmm. You know, that does not need to end in the two people n- even agreeing, right? You can just basically be like, oh, I have a better understanding of why you think that. You seem to have a better understanding of why I think what I think. We still don't agree. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and and literally walk away from that without that, like, living rent-free in your head.
1: I think that's a good a good point. And, you know, the last one I was going to talk about, um, that's the eight eighth concept actually is um, how each Bowen concept in Bowen theory can apply to non-family groups. And we've been talking about that a little bit. A Couple other quick um, concepts. One is the family projection process. It describes the process where um, a parent transmits their emotional anxiety or problems onto a child. Um, So this is like a simple way of describing how it would work, that the parent focuses on a child out of fear that something is wrong with the child. My child has low self-esteem. Oh, no, my child has low self-esteem. And then the the, uh, parent interprets the child's behavior as confirming that fear. And then the parent treats the child as though something's wrong and and does more for them and tries to build up their self-esteem and they kind of feed that. But there's really underlying anxiety and it's a projection process that actually, um, you know, for the child brings on more symptoms and more, it's like they have low self-esteem, I help them because they have low self-esteem. They have more self-esteem, low self-esteem, so I help them more, and it kind of feeds that process.
0: Now, to jump in on that, too, the, the way that I understand that process is that parents, this is what you talked earlier about, like trying to understand multi-generations, going all the way back to grandparents usually, right, mm-hmm. if you can, and if further if if that you're able to. But there's this idea probably that the, the problems, the hang-ups, the... Uh, sticking points that people experience in their life don't just come, you know, out of the clear blue sky. They're things that, in a sense, we might inherit through this process of social transmission that that occurs through the raising of children.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you look at the, you know, the projection process or kind of what you're talking about in terms of the reactionary stance. So, you know, you know, somebody could say like, "My um, family never went to church, so I'm going to make sure my family goes to church every Sunday." And then swings way over there and then go every Sunday. And then the next kid is like, generation is like, you know, we had to go every Sunday. I'm not, not going to go once in a while. But it, it really, if you look at it, they're like, you know, you know, a reaction that swings over. And it's not really a, a middle or a um, an intentional principle decision. It's more of a reaction to something mm-hmm. that somebody experienced, too.
0: Uh, it's almost it seems to imply, too, that potentially what we might see is that like certain maybe behaviors or or ways of thinking about things kind of skip generations. Parents might come in and they'd be like, I have no idea where my kid got this crazy idea from. Like that we never, we never brought this up. We never talked about this. This was, this wasn't a part of our family. And if you do a little bit of probing, you can be like, oh, the grandparents, that was a big thing for them. Uh, Look at that. And, And maybe that's where the kid picked it up from.
1: The one I wanted to touch base on is the emotional, the concept of emotional cutoff. It's really important because, it's, it, because you know, it's, it's a process or a concept that talks about when you're trying, a person is trying to manage unresolved emotional issues with their parents, like I kind of alluded to before, but with their parents or even siblings or other family members by reducing or totally cutting off emotional contact with them. So it's an instinctual um, survival kind of thing. We were talking about the, the brains Of like, hey, I'm just gonna. Now that I'm not under that person's um, wing, or I don't have to live there, um, this is so uncomfortable for for me to be around this person. I'm gonna cut off from them, Um, and it feels it feels better for a while, but in the long run, it's not it's not a good, healthy solution. It has its its set of, of of costs associated with it. It's a it's sort of a temporary fix, but it it builds interest on the other end by not uh, dealing with things. And, and really the ideal position would be to, um, to stay connected def- while trying to define self. So defining yourself, staying connected, it's kind of a mantra that, that I would suggest.
0: I, I think when I, I think about emotional cutoff, the, the term that always comes to my mind is unresolved. Uh, there's this idea that I, I've seen this, you know, in the lives of certain people who have just kind of come to know in my life, uh, they have somebody in their family who is is doing something that they find really destructive or, or disagreeable or something like that, and they, they go, I just I just can't, I have to not interact with this person at all. Yeah. It's too much for me, in defense of their own emotional like health, I suppose, and and regulation. They they say, I just I can't talk to this person. I have to cut them out of my life. Um, but the problem with that seems to be that, like you said, short term, okay, maybe that that helps a little bit. But then that that lives as this sort of like unresolved what if?
1: Yeah. So if I was coaching somebody who was cut off from a from a family member, you know, to think about um, the principle of staying connected and 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 doing that, and it can be like not very satisfying because it can feel very superficial, it can feel very forced, um, but it still leads to better things than just being cut off, and it can lead to. A deeper connection and to resolving some things um, so again getting into like the the triune brain it takes thinking about um, cut off for example and thinking about what is a healthier way um, to handle this a more principled way and it's making a plan for that and then and doing that whether it's touch you know touching base once a week once a month whatever it is because um, I was thinking about like what do I try to do with with people in the family of origin groups that I work with or and And, and I, I don't know if I said that, that, this that clearly, but you know Bowen. another thing that attracted me to it is that I can use it in consulting work I do, I can use it in coaching work, I can use it in counseling, I can use it you know my own family, my own work um, there. I can um, use it in just any system. so I like that it's not just limited to one 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 context where it can be used. Um, but I was thinking about you know when I'm working with people um like, what am I doing? Because like a lot of it is managing myself in the situation. So it's to try to remain grounded. You know, there's a kind of phrase that, that's talked about a lot, being a non-anxious presence um, in in the counseling room and the consulting um, setting and so forth. So, um, and then to try to be the least anxious person in the room is another way people have, have talked about it. And then to think systems. So to be seeing the interconnectedness of things, um, seeing the reactivity going on and the, the, um, the behaviors that are happening that are are very reactionary and are not driven out of um, somebody's values or what they're saying they really want. And then to help coach clients to, um, again, um, ground things. And that's part of being that, that non anxious presence to help the person to get be able to get into their um, thinking brain, so that they can see more possibilities. So they can see different ways of communicating and managing the situation, and then being able to define themselves. Um, so really, to help clients break out of anxious knee-jerk types of reactions, to try to slow things down, and to see different opportunities and possibilities, and ways to handle and manage situations, um, and getting that thinking brain back online.
0: Yeah, again, that makes me think of just like people. We used other words earlier, you know, being able to have mature relationships and reactions to others, um, being able to feel secure, you know, about who you are and what you're choosing and not needing to be really defensive and, you know, like kind of proving yourself to anybody or uh, proving that other people are wrong about what they, they think. It, it's, I think that, that what you're describing is really very useful because in so many different parts of our lives it might enable people to be just more open generally, right? Mm -hmm. Um, more accepting of themselves and of other people uh, who who have different experiences than they do and maybe even different like ideas, opinions about important stuff. Uh, It it allows for people to encounter difference without that being a threat. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And again, if, if, you know, our brains are made for survival and we experience a lot of things as threat, then we're really accessing that part of our brain. But if we can be more um, grounded and and less anxious than we um, were able to just participate more fully in life and and really engage our our full mind, but our full self.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Mike Bradburn, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to sit down and talk to us about Bowen Family Systems. This has been really fun.
1: Thank you, Neil. I really enjoyed our time. Take care. Thanks. (laughs)